0: Welcome to this episode of the Atlantic Career Journey podcast. Today's guest is James Ray, who is managing director of Dragonfly Growth Partners. James and I worked together at Mannheim in their online services division. I valued his professionalism, his business ethics, and the ability to think strategically while maintaining focus on the customer. He always kept his cool in high pressure situations, and I'm eager to hear how he's cultivated that demeanor through his career. James has excelled in multiple industries, from startups to enterprise-level organizations, and I'm happy to have him
1: on this podcast. So, welcome, James. Well, hello, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to uh, fulfill this episode of your podcast, and I might discover something about myself in the process.
0: Thank you, sir. It's part therapy, part education. So uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> but no, man. So let's uh, let's start things
1: off, man. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Houston, Texas, and if anybody ever asks me about Houston, my first thing is to tell them, don't go there. (laughs) Uh, Most of Houston is under sea level, and the hurricanes flood it frequently, but worse than that, the humidity is always at about 95%, and when you get 98 degrees and 95% humidity, you can only imagine the heat index.
0: Bad combination, yeah.
1: Uh, Bad combination. But I grew up um, under the Friday night lights playing football in Texas, and I was raised in Houston, went to school at uh, Texas A&M University, and that took me away from Houston, about 90 miles inland, and had a very good experience at Texas A&M.
0: Oh, well, let me stop you there. So in high school, did you have certain subjects that you liked or things that you were passionate about that you wanted to carry on into college?
1: Honestly, no. Um, I'm a first-generation college student, so my parents didn't didn't go to college, and they both worked in retail professions, long hours, meager pay, raising three boys, and I just knew that college was a ticket to a better opportunity. Um, I worked in retail from a very young age. My dad was smart enough to bring me to work with him and work his back room at an Eckerd drugstore. And I would organize his back room. I would take in the in, in shipments. And most of the people listening to this will not recognize, but this was before the uh, universal product code and SKU barcodes that ring up at a register. We actually had to put a sticker with a price on every item. Yep. So my dad was smart enough to let me sit in the back room and run the pricing machine and price everything in those boxes, put them into, back into the boxes so that his retail clerks that he was paying more than $3 a day, which is what he was paying me, um, the, the opportunity to just quickly go and restock the shelves.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I didn't, I didn't realize this about you, but I worked in a Reed drug store in my high school. Mm
1: -hmm. So I know
0: exactly what you're talking about (laughs) from 82 to 86. Yeah. And um, you know, I think there's, I, there's values I learned from that one customer service and two understanding supply chain at an early age. And so you probably experienced some of that same, same education there, right?
1: I did. And, and the advantage uh, of having that job was to see my dad, who's an excellent manager, who cared about his team and really made sure that they knew that they could come to him with anything and he would uh, do his best to work it out for them. And so seeing the, the respect and admiration that they had for my dad and the behavior that he displayed was very influential on me.
0: That's, that's awesome. So you, you got a little sense of business. Um, so coming out of high school, um, did you know what you wanted to major in college or were you just taking general studies or what'd that look like?
1: Well, Paul, you know, as a first generation college, college student who had done well in high school, um, I have the benefit of, of good genes when it comes to uh, intelligence. And naturally, first generation, you gotta shoot for the moon, right? go to med school. Let's go, let's go study microbiology. Go big or go home, right? Go bigger. Well, I didn't go home, but I didn't make (laughs) it through microbiology. Um, when, when I got to organic and if I didn't mention it, I had been working my way through school. I had a couple of, couple of jobs and I was foolish enough to try and walk on as a football athlete at Texas A&M. And when I finally realized that the speed of that game with those athletes was just beyond my ability, I decided I had to give up football in order to to work because uh, I was a non scholarship athlete but mm-hmm. so organic chemistry is the only class I ever failed in my entire life, and it's because after midterms I just didn't get it and i couldn't couldn't uh, catch up and so I finished. Texas A&M, working with many, many different jobs, and every one of them taught me something. But when I went there, it was pre-med. That's what I wanted to do. I felt like that would be an appropriate ending for somebody to be the first in their family to go to college, and it just didn't work out that way. I ended up finding the College of Business and accounting. And many of the people that listen to this will recognize that you either get accounting or you don't. And fortunately for me, it was pretty straightforward. And so it was a, it was a degree that I could pick up and make up for the first two years of my academic career and pull myself back up into a reasonable and respectable GPA that led me to start a career with Arthur Anderson.
0: Okay. Well, good. So, so coming out of college, did you? So were, you um, were you an auditor? Were you a consultant? Were you an accountant?
1: I was an accountant, and I have still have my Texas CPA license hanging in my office just to remind me that I once was one. Um, but as soon as I passed that exam, I left the audit practice and went to work in the consulting division, uh, then called the Management Information Consulting Division of Arthur Anderson and Company. That is, you would recognize today, is Accenture.
0: Mm-hmm so what was what was it that appealed to you about consulting
1: not having to do the same thing more than once so i have a intellectually curious mind and uh, while i could do audit and i did well at it it's just repetitive and what you do in audit is you actually go out for a preliminary audit during the year to identify the controls and all of the information flows within that company so you understand how things should work. And when you come back to do a final audit, you're checking the results and cross-checking those results based upon the systems that you learned about and making sure that everything is in order. Um, That was great the first time through for Continental Airlines, for example. I did the audits for Continental Airlines. I was on that team and it was fun. You learn a lot and you learn a lot about a business, but doing it the second time is routine and by the third time I just wasn't interested in it so the difference is in the consulting division every project is unique meeting new people solving new problems and facing new challenges and that's what I found to be much more uh, interesting for my career. Gotcha
0: so how long were you in the consulting um, division at Anderson?
1: I was in consulting from I guess so I joined them in 1985 and I moved into the consulting division in 1989 and I was or eight, 1987 and then in 1993 I left the company.
0: Okay. Gotcha. So what uh after 6 7 years um what was it that that you started thinking about to maybe make a change or was it just that that the eagerness to learn something new at that point, or what was what was your thought process?
1: What triggered it is um, my son was born in nineteen ninety one, and I had been around partners and senior members of the firm, and had had good friendships there. And when the partners would say to me that their son or their daughter was graduating from high school in three months, and they regret that they don't really have a relationship with that their, their son or daughter Uh, I decided I didn't want to be in that position so I decided travel at this at the pace that happens in big time consulting is not conducive to creating a good parental relationship so I decided to resign Uh, when I told the partners that I was resigning they said to me do you realize what you are giving up as in you could be a partner someday and I looked at them and I said you know what I don't know that I know what I'm giving up, but I know what you did. And I don't want to give that up. I don't want to give up a relationship with my son. And so I left when he, right, right after his first birthday. Uh, What's interesting is the partner said, well, all right, all right. We understand. Um, Why don't you go to our global professional education facility in St. Charles, Illinois, which is where it was at the time. Why don't you go there? why don't you work there, live in a beautiful place outside west of Chicago, and why don't you work there as a program manager until your son is a little bit older, and then you can come back and take on uh, a line job going out working with clients. And so I took them up on it. They relocated me to St. Charles, and it's a beautiful place on the Fox River. And my son and I had his first snowfall, building snowmen and doing all that up there in Chicago. And I was working on the leading edge development programs for Arthur Anderson doing associate partner partner development, the new manager school and various different things. And I was really enjoying it. And so I enjoyed working for Arthur Anderson and I respected the firm greatly. And it was a, it was a nice compromise.
0: A great opportunity because it allowed you some balance that you were really looking for and and uh you know kudos to them for not wanting to let you know a great employee walk out the door just because you know life life changes and and that's you know i think certainly today i mean there's there's a lot more of that balance at least um, um an understanding of that and i think people are making that more of a focus and a priority than they had been and i think in the early 90s that was a very different story right didn't have okay. have the internet you were traveling everywhere every meeting was in person and that was after a flight and wherever else so that's right that's right good so how long were you in that uh that that program manager spot
1: not as long as i planned to be um and i can recount the number of cities that my son was in before uh before he was six years old and there are plenty of them but we moved from houston to chicago shortly after his first birthday and we had his uh, second birthday in Chicago. And then uh, I got an offer to go and join AT&T, who had just acquired NCR, to create a global information services company. And um, that opportunity came by way of one of the senior managers, uh, senior uh, leaders of the Arthur Anderson Professional Education, was recruited by AT&T because we were eventually we were to build out a global services organization, they thought, Hmm, Arthur Anderson and Anderson consulting have done a really good job. Let's go recruit from that campus. And so, um, I made, uh, built a good relationship with a gentleman who they came to recruit and he took me with him. And he said to me, he said, what's it going to take for you to come and work for me at NCR? I said, well, you know, I've been thinking about going back to grad school. So, here's what here's what you can do. If you will pay for the graduate school program of my choice, uh, the executive program, then I will come and work at NCR. And he did. So I was fortunate to go and study organizational behavior at Pepperdine University in their, their college of business, the Graziato School. And Um, that was the deal that I made. So I was able to complete my graduate education while working full time because it was an executive program and it was paid for by AT&T.
0: That's, and that's a, that's actually a great lesson to learn is that there are employers that will cover that type, uh, either full or even partial. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're, you know, if you're Kind of stumbling a little bit with how would I pay for grad school, or I've got a job, or whatever. There are certain companies that that can actually provide some of that, which is really a good thing. And um, so, you were out on the West Coast, is that?
1: No, no, I was in Dayton, Ohio. I okay, was in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, and okay. I think that lesson, Paul, that you're alluding to is to really know what you want and be willing to ask for it. Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: The other lesson I heard, too, is, you know, you had somebody that was in your network that saw the work that you did and now provided you with a new opportunity that you had you not networked or, you know, stayed in in contact or certainly proving yourself in your current job might not have, that door may never have opened up for you. So that's another good lesson to learn.
1: That's very true.
0: Yeah. So uh, AT&T NCR, that was a big deal. I remember that when that went through. So what were some of the, uh, the lessons you learned out of that massive organization and uh, some of the acquisitional pain points?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's a great example. And it it is literally, I, I still have many documents that at some point, when I get to the point where I actually can create a case study, I will create the case study because I was here, I was studying organizational behavior in graduate school. And this was a, program that i went out to the west coast every six to eight weeks for a full week and with some of the the luminary and absolute widely recognized experts in the field of organizational behavior team dynamics etc and so it was a great education but i was immersed in an environment where i could observe the the distinction between good and not so good. And AT&T acquiring NCR was a good strategy. It was a good strategy because AT&T at that time, 95% of their revenue was in the United States and they wanted to be a global company. Mm -hmm. NCR is the first multinational company ever in the United States. Yeah, been around forever. Been around forever and they had sales teams on the ground in every country of the world And so AT&T made that acquisition so they could utilize that global network that NCR already had to start introducing solutions in other countries. We were building the consulting and solution delivery organization to make that happen. The problem was is that AT&T didn't understand that NCR had its own culture and proud, proud history. And they kind of ignored that. And they thought, well, AT&T is almost as old as NCR. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they were pretty proud of theirs as well. So they renamed the company AT&T Global Information Solutions. The strategy was spot on, but they didn't understand that unless people are committed to the company and the strategy, you can't make it work. And when they replaced the NCR logo on the world headquarters of NCR, I was in the fork, you know, the courtyard, like with everybody else out in front lawn. And they used a helicopter to come and pull a tarp off of the new logo. And all anyone could say is that old at and meatball, we used to call it. mm mm-hmm. It looks like the Death Star yeah, from Star Wars. Yep, And that's what people were saying. Is that we just lost our company. We just lost our history. We lost our identity. And that was a very important moment for me to understand that a strategy can be absolutely spot on. But the ability to execute the strategy depends upon the commitment of people who have to align to that strategy and if you hmm. can't take the time uh to help them understand why this is good and why it is good for them and why it's good for the company then you have a lot of public compliance and private defiance where people salute the flag but uh under their breath this will never work right and so that lesson has been very valuable for me in the rest of my career and now advising companies and advising young leaders and startups and, and so forth.
0: Well, but what's it, that, what's that famous phrase, right? About culture and strategy, right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. You culture, know, culture strategy for lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's absolutely true. So it was a great strategy, but it just failed because they did not understand how to enroll the commitment of the people who have to make it work. And so that was a spectacular failure. And I was living in Geneva, Switzerland, um, fast forwarding a bit, where I was stationed to go and integrate the AT&T international team with the NCR solutions team. And this is in 1995. I know that because my son turned four years old in Geneva, Switzerland. And, um, I was, I was in Paris overnight and there was a sky, they had a video conference system, which was satellite broadcast. They had one at about noon. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take the train back to Geneva and I will review that recording or hear about when I get there. When I got into Geneva and I walked into the apartment, I looked on television to CNN and and the chairman, Bob Allen, was on CNN. And I thought, wow, did we have an outage? Did at and have a terrible outage that Bob Allen, the CEO, is on CNN? Nope. Bob Allen had announced the divestiture of NCR while I was riding the train back from Paris to Geneva. Wow. So I looked at my wife and I said, well, since my job was to integrate these two organizations, it's a pretty good conclusion that we're not going to be here long.
0: Yeah. So that was in, you said that was in 95?
1: 95, yeah. So,
0: so what, and you, you were at HT a few more years, right? Was there a, um, yeah,
1: that's right. I did. Yeah. You did your homework. Um, I had a choice. I could go back to NCR in Dayton, Ohio, which is a lovely town and, and a really great town to, to raise a family in, mm-hmm. or I could go to a new, division of AT&T called AT&T solutions with um, the former partners who founded the management information consulting division within Arthur Anderson. They were starting a new consulting unit for AT&T. So uh, here's another lesson. I took that job after a teleconference with the CEO and the president of that organization. And the reason they could make me that offer after a teleconference without meeting me is because they were from Arthur Anderson. Mm -hmm. They went back to the partners that I worked for in Houston, Texas, and asked whether I was a good bet. So- Power the network, right? Power the network and the importance of a reputation.
0: Yep, that alumni base too. Whether it's Anderson, which is really strong, or really any other company, I think you you don't want to burn bridges because you never know right. what what's ahead and what opportunities. Again, those doors that open up, you know, you never want to never want to potentially pass up a future opportunity because of um, you know something right. silly that you do now.
1: Mm-hmm. So I moved to DC. Left worked with AT and T Solutions. We built a new consulting division. It had. It was a really spectacular organization, recruiting from McKinsey and the top graduate schools in the country and really solving big, complex problems for uh, enterprises in every industry. So it was a great, great move for me. Really enjoyed that. Um, But soon enough, I I grew weary of working in a big organization and I had to uh, turn my attention to another entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that was what was next.
0: Did you feel like um, you've always had that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and that kind of a startup? Because sometimes you can be, like you said, there were opportunities at AT&T, obviously a large, massive organization. But mm-hmm. if you're in a startup thing, and I felt that way with the online group at Mannheim, you yeah. know, you sort of have this umbrella of... You know, some financial backing that you're not always having to sell to VCs or whatever, but they kind of leave you alone. You get a chance to do your own thing and spread your wings to sort of create some, some new product or some, you know, new market or whatever the case is.
1: Yeah, Paul, um, you're spot on, and effectively, um, I the term for that is entrepreneurial. There you so go, entrepreneurial. So I've had entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial experiences, and you and I met with one. We'll come to that one later. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. My 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 uh, proclivity for looking for those opportunities is when you have a greenfield, you can actually create something that's different. And I was very early, uh, as I said, I joined as an auditor, became a CPA, and then I moved into the consulting division. And while I was there, um, I actually helped manage the office launch of the new name anderson consulting so we did a big rollout for that but i joined the change management services and that is organizational change and adaptation to new systems and so forth and that is what led me to my graduate study is because i really wanted to understand more about the individual psychology the human psychology and the organizational impact of the effectiveness of individuals and teams and so that's where i did my graduate study and then going to NCR and creating a new global services organization and then to AT&T to join and, and really a founding team to build out one of the greatest consulting groups in the, in the country. I had all of those serial experiences um, of building something. And I really enjoy doing that. And ultimately, as you well know, when I was uh, brought to Atlanta, with Cox Enterprises, it was because I had been a consultant to Autotrader.com and Chip and uh, Jim McKnight and the whole crew and so I got to know them and when Jim McKnight was asked to create a new online vehicle exchange, um, Jim was savvy, he knew that he could relocate me, pay me a reasonable salary for three years for what it would cost him as a consultant for one year. So he was mm-hmm. a pretty smart cat. So he brought me down to Atlanta to uh, help launch that. But the attraction, Paul, was exactly that. Let's go build something new. Let's yep. start with an idea and let's go execute. And so that's, uh, that's what brought me here to Atlanta.
0: Interesting. Yeah, talking about Jim McKnight, he is uh, one of the smartest, most humble person that I've ever met. You know, he's Mm -hmm. just, he's like, oh, I'm just a, just a country boy from, you know, North Florida or South Georgia, wherever he was from. But You know, Could, could see all the pieces on the chessboard and understood how they worked and a really fascinating guy. I enjoyed working with him. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So yeah, we, um, we met at Mannheim Um, OVE was the online division. And um, so that was, that was an exciting time to sort of build again from that entrepreneurial um, facet to kind of do some new things for a company that is always looking to experiment. Um, I, I enjoyed my time there. I was, I've always been a big car guy anyway,
1: mm. um,
0: but, but like you, I got a little bit, you know, bored with things and, you know, I, I definitely wanted to uh, stretch my wings a little bit. Tell me a little bit about what you did at Mannheim.
1: Well, let's, I want to unpack that entrepreneurial term for you too, for your, for your listeners. Um, you described it very well. When you are in an organization like Cox Enterprises that has a steady cash flow and mm-hmm. is very prosperous, they can afford to take risks. They can afford to make bets. And if you're, if you're, if you have that itch for being an entrepreneur the best way to hone your craft is to be an intrapreneur because the, the risk of running out of money is pretty low. If you're working within Cox enterprises, um, the risk of failure is the same, mm-hmm. but ultimately being there, my view at at and at Anderson at Cox enterprises and ultimately us bank and chase bank. I mean, those are the next, chapters in my career after Mannheim um, every one of these, these organizations that I consider to be entrepreneurial opportunities, they had ample resources, didn't have to worry about that. And that's the advantage and a lot of smart people and a lot of respect in the industry. Mm -hmm. The challenges that go along with that is they're not always ready to take risk. They're not always ready to cannibalize their own yeah their own business, and so in Mannheim, that was a struggle yeah and and so it it has its own set of advantages and challenges, but it's a great way if you ever have the itch to be an entrepreneur to trial it with less risk
0: yeah. And that's a really good point, too, because some people don't necessarily know um, that they have that sort of a startup mentality, um, either the fear of going out on their own or trying to get funding to do something new, you mm-hmm. know, over ways uh, I've got a successful day job and, you know, why give this up? Um, others are just born to it. They can't stand, you know, the either the repetition or some of the, you know, you get into process, you know, versus starting things new and having that new idea um but it's a it's a nice balance like you said to to have sort of the best of both worlds and at right. least kind of experience it, get some exposure and then feel like is this is this what i wanted to do because i after i left Mannheim, i actually went to a startup e-commerce company and i never thought i was wired to be in a startup you know world but it was almost like a graduate degree for me mm-hmm. i learned everything there is to know about business and you sat down with the CEO and the president and the CTO every single day and strategized with them. And you could see where sales were going, what marketing was doing, what affected legal, how our product team was going to be building things and how it all affected the customer ultimately, you know, That's so it was right. great. That is so true. No, So yeah, you were at Mannheim. Um, I think you left. Yeah, you definitely left before I did. Um, so tell me about, uh, you know, leaving Mannheim and, and uh, you know, what what prompted you to leave? because. Obviously Cox Automotive, Cox Enterprises, very successful, especially at that
1: time. Yeah, and um, they continue to be successful, for yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. Andy Schwartz has done a great job there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, real, the real answer to that is that I could not convince Dean Eisner and his executive team that what we had begun with OVE was going to take over the industry. And what I mean by that is once dealers... became accustomed to buying cars online, um, that their core business was going to be under stress. And we had that conflict all the way through. You were working with Mannheim and online and and from OVE, we always felt that tension between OVE and the physical auctions. But what I was trying to explain to Nick Peluso, head of sales and Dean Eisner, the CEO, is this is not a blip. You are going to see fewer and fewer cars running through the auction and you're going to see more and more cars sold through alternative channels. And what I meant by that is that off lease cars, there are a lot of system dynamics I could go into, but I'm not going to bore your audience. (laughs) But the point is that um, rental fleets were beginning to sell directly to consumers because they could. Yeah. And the, The brands, GM, chief among them, already had built their own platform for selling to dealers those off-lease cars. Smart auction with GM. Mm -hmm. And said, this is not a blip. We have to re-engineer the business. We have to accommodate that we still will get a share, and the largest share of used cars for resale, but the numbers are going to go down and we need to prepare for that. They didn't listen when I was at OVE, so I moved into business intelligence with um, on you know, a staff position so I could actually use the data to show them the decline and predict where it was going. Still didn't listen. So I finally just said, all right, well, I guess I'm of no use here. So I started looking for my network and here's another lesson for your listeners. Um, I reached out to a gentleman who I had worked with in a consulting firm when I did the project for autotrader.com. And he was the president of the consulting firm that I was working for. So I just reached out to him, see what he was doing. And he was was then at at a company called Nova, which became Elevon, Mm -hmm. a payment processor. And he said, James, I got a great job for you. And I said, what's that, Mike? he said, it's a program manager, global program manager. I said, you know, that sounds interesting, but I can find you somebody for that. I'm not really interested in that role. And I did. I found somebody that he could hire for that role. Um, And about three months later, he called me back. He said, hey, James, I've got another job for you. And I said, what's this? He said, I need you to build a professional services organization inside of Elevon to create high value, high margin revenue. And I said, now that is something I'm interested (laughs) in, Mike. And so that's what I did. So Mike Basilla hired me at Elevon, and uh, I did build a professional services practice where we did business process outsourcing is a fancy way of saying, take on a task that the clients aren't good at and you can do better and use a gain share pricing strategy to say the more you outperform their benchmark, the more money that you make. So it was a very profitable business for us. And the lesson there is Mike Pasilla was my leader in 2000 to 2004. We went our separate ways. I came to, to, to Cox in 2005 and in 2009 we reconnected. He had become the head of business development and executive for sales at a U.S. bank subsidiary called Elevon. And he brought me on into a position there and that worked out. Four years later, He had moved on to Chase, and I went to work for him at Chase to create a new division of enterprise sales. So the lesson is if you find somebody you respect and you enjoy working for them, you enjoy their leadership, don't be afraid to follow them. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And it works both ways, right? If you've built a team up and you move to someplace new or you start up something new, mm-hmm. and you see this all the time when you have a, a changeover with leadership, you know, that they, they tend to bring in people that they've worked with, that they've trusted, they've seen work, and even if it's a different industry, they know that, you know, you can learn the industry, but how you work, how you, um, how you deliver, you know, the ways you communicate and the way that you lead um, that's, that's, I think, that's a tougher training situation, right. and so yeah. So not only were you being pulled with people that you'd worked and they respected you, but uh, flip side, you know, you can do that as you get into uh, a leadership position too, to to try and, you know, build out your leadership team in the same way. Yeah,
1: absolutely, have done it.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, good. So I am curious to hear what you're doing now because um, Dragonfly sounds like a really cool place. Um, you've been there for a while, and you and I haven't touched base in a while, so. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing now.
1: Dragonfly Growth Partners was formed with a couple of other guys who are accomplished professionals, getting getting old and gray, you know. And <laughs> uh, we we needed a um, a firm, if you will, to not be independent out there. So we created Dragonfly Partners, Dragonfly Growth Partners, to really provide services to companies. It's a it's a, a way for us to do some consulting work. And we, all of us as partners, have rolled in and out of Dragonfly as we've taken on other challenges for, as full-time. So the opportunity that it's given to me is after leaving J.P. Morgan Chase, which is where I went after Elevon. We don't need to go through that whole story. But when I left in 2018, um, dragonfly growth partners became my my business card again and i became an acting chief revenue officer for a mobile payments company in petroleum you know fuel sales retail fuel mm-hmm. and uh, I've been very active in mobile commerce for the last five plus years um, i can say it this way I lost my first investment in mobile payments in 2014. Um, and that's because we were too early and the technology that we deployed in 2014, 2015 is the technology that now is becoming in vogue. It's mm-hmm. called a QR code for executing a payment. Yeah. So being early is still being wrong. And so that was a good lesson for me as an entrepreneur yeah. and an investor, but what I'm doing now, Paul, is um, actually investing in and advising early stage companies across a range of different functions, but all aligned with this mobile commerce, digital commerce, and an on-demand and convenience-driven economy. And that's my investment thesis It includes advising a company that is doing digital promotions, through mobile devices using blockchain technology to eliminate fraud and duplication of the offers. All the way to the payment in a transaction on a mobile device using a new payment method that we built a network to execute. So everything I'm doing now is around the mobile commerce domain. That's
0: interesting. And there is certainly, you know, that, that area is going to continue to grow. I mean, as we just start to see more and more opportunities with um, just being out in, you know, the, the world, especially in 2020 where everyone's afraid to touch anything now, you know, I've seen like Apple pay explode in any Mm -hmm. number of ways where you don't have to pull your credit card out and swipe it anywhere. And, you know, the, the, the watches and other mobile devices are getting, you know, just more and more ubiquitous and um, payments
1: payments are becoming invisible and it started with amazon it's continued with uber and now it's pervasive and mm-hmm. so the the way that payments are present, payment methods are presented and used is is very very different today and i would not have wished covid-19 on the world but i have to do I have to tell you that that, that has advanced the U.S. consumer base into mobile estimated between five and ten years, a leap of Mm -hmm. five to ten years of what it normally would have taken to reach these levels of adoption. And those are studies that are being released by McKinsey, estimating a ten-year leap ahead. So given that my investment thesis is all about that, it's a good thing. Uh, But it's not worth the cost to our country right now
0: but it's also um, a, a certainly a, a a massive example of what opportunity can lead to you know innovation and mm-hmm. embracing new technology and like you said if this if this pandemic happened twenty years ago I mean you know we'd be in a whole different you know boat but you and I are doing a podcast through a zoom network and <laughs> the, the sound is crystal clear it sounds like you and I are sitting right next to each other on a table mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, so I think what you just said earlier right being early is still wrong and i think you know we were fortunate to have this happen in you know a year where we have mobile devices everywhere and we've set up to do different things that we can actually do remotely so um that's that's pretty yeah it's pretty amazing so you're you're looking at investments um what what advice would you give to you know younger folks whether they're high school college or you know, early career that are looking at, Hey, I got an idea and I want to start something up. Are there, are there certain things or aspects that you look at that can give you, um, just some insight or as a, as a new entrepreneur, what are some things that you could throw at them as kind of best practices?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, my, I founded a company in 1998, uh, just before the dot-com crash. We didn't go through that chapter of my life, but... Um, <laughs> that's a separate podcast. That's a, that's a whole other podcast, and I got a lot of stories from that, being out Can't in wait Sil- to hear Silicon Valley. I would say, as an entre- entrepreneur, you really need to um, have just the passion and the determination and persistence if you're going to take it on, because you will hear a lot of no, you will face challenges, and you have to have the conviction that, you know, this is right. And the, the challenge with that is, is you also have to be open-minded to recognize you're not the only one with that idea. No one ever is. Mm-hmm. And a great example is um, for me recently is Nikola Tesla. Had what arguably is a better way for transmitting electricity. Mm-hmm. But Thomas Edison outfoxed him. Yeah. And had power and political power to shut his business down. And so you you have to be mindful of the social, the political, the technological, the societal forces, and be aware of how your idea can survive in that environment. And so that's having the conviction is not enough. It has to be practical. Mm -hmm. And so there we could have do a whole podcast on what should you know before you step out as an entrepreneur. But the persistence and the diligence to really understand, the opportunity and be able to describe it in a way that others can sense the opportunity and the ability to orchestrate the resources to bring that idea to life. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that you need to have if you're going to be an entrepreneur.
0: I think we should definitely do a separate episode of this because I'd be curious to deep dive into that. I've, Mm -hmm. you know, I've I've just, talking to different people and certainly reading things, um, you know, there's two schools of thought. One is, you know, it's a side hustle, right? You've got a day job, you've got a paycheck, it gives you some flexibility and some opportunity to, um, you know, if you have to do some pivoting or you've run into closed doors or whatever, yeah. you're not taking food off the table. The other hand, if you do quit and you go all in, you know, you you go back to that passion and that determination and you're like, you know, it's that Richard Gear line from uh Officer and Gentleman, right? I've got nowhere else to go. Like I'm going to make this work mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. And mm-hmm. so I, I think there's probably room for each of those mentalities depending on the idea, the industry, and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I think I think first of all, let's do a whole other podcast because we can elaborate on it. But yes, I agree with you that you know the I, I don't have any other choices. I have mm-hmm. no ch- you know, there's a Vasco da Gama, when he came to the shores of, it was really South America, he burned the boats, right? We're not going back. Yeah. Burn the boats. It's a name, it's a title of a book. But ultimately, that was commitment. And you have to have that commitment. But you have to have the right team, you have to have the right resources in order to execute it. Because I can tell you, no single individual is capable of executing to success in this modern world.
0: Great point. That's, that's really good insight. And I think let's, we will, we will, we will title the next one entrepreneurial lessons or something like that, but I think okay. that'd be, that'd be fantastic, man. So, yeah. uh, well, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one final thing and then we can wrap up here, but uh, sure. time travel, if you could go
1: back in yeah. time, what, what advice would you give yourself? Man, that, that is, uh, is a great question. Um, and it's one that, that merits really deep contemplation. But since I don't have that time, uh, I <laughs> think I would say that you know, the one thing that I would go back in time is, is, is to recognize that life is a journey with many turns and uh, embrace each one of them. And don't forget, to learn the lesson from the life that you've led. And what I mean by that is just be aware that when things look like they're not working out, there's a lesson in there Mm -hmm. and bring that lesson forward with you and just recognize that it is the cumulative experience and wisdom that you accrue that you can only, build and you can only retain if you're reflective about it don't just blame it on somebody else be honest with yourself what is it that i could have done differently and so if i were to go back 30 years 40 years coming out of high school uh i think first of all don't don't choose a major based on what you think it will provide you in terms of a lifestyle yeah Yeah. You really need to be more aware of what you can commit to. What you can commit to. So, but I would say that, but I would tell myself 30 years, 40 years ago, I would say, learn from every experience.
0: That's well put. Um, I think all of those are really great nuggets um, and certainly useful, not only for college uh, students, but also at any point in your life, because we're all still learning things change so rapidly that uh, every one of these things could also be used um, every week for you and I and, and those in between. So uh, well put, man. Well, listen, I, I, have kept you long enough. I really appreciate the time. This has been a lot of fun catching up with you. Um, A really interesting journey you've had. And uh, it's been, I think, really insightful for the audience to hear some of the things you've gone through and, and how you've, how you've navigated the waters to
1: get where you are today. I appreciate it, Paul. It's great to, great to speak with you again, and let's not be a stranger's. Let's get back to when COVID-19 allows us. Let's uh, have a coffee or a whiskey. Your choice.
0: Mm. I'll take uh, door number two, please. <laughs> so. All right, James. Thanks again. We'll talk soon.
1: All right, my friend. Be well. Right. Take care.